You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week's guest is Jenny Slate. For at least a decade, Jenny Slate has been one of my favorite stand-up comedians. It started when she co-hosted Big Terrific with Max Silvestri, past guest, and Gabe Liedman, future guest, I hope. It was a weekly comedy show in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and it was the best, or at least my favorite, for years. Back when there was live comedy still, it eventually morphed into a monthly show at the Largo in Los Angeles. And Jenny was just so hilarious and specific and free and open on stage, it was indescribable. The issue was, for many years, describing her comedy was the only option, because Jenny refused to record or film her stand-up. Eventually, Jenny became known for other things. There was her one season on SNL, which she sometimes credits for the start of her terrible, awful stage fright, which she still has never really gotten over. There was Marcel the Shell, the impossibly charming stop-motion viral video in which Jenny provided the voice for a sweet little shell with shoes on. But mostly, she's known for acting, be it in her breakout role in the 2014 indie hit Obvious Child, to comedy guest spots on shows like Parks and Rec and Kroll Show, to her voice work on shows like Bob's Burgers and Big Mouth. For context for this interview, 2016 and the years that followed were sort of a grand reorienting for Jenny. This was largely due to the election of Donald Trump, her divorce, and the explosion of the Me Too movement. Creatively, the result was twofold. First, she wrote Little Weirds, a hard-to-describe, book-shaped thing that's part memoir, part short story, part feminist spiritual text, part collection of magical impressionistic pieces of writing filled with gentle, sensitive creatures, which Jenny credits for saving her life. The other, partly inspired by the release of Hannah Gatsby's Nanette and the frustration Jenny felt by the men who questioned if that special was stand-up, Jenny rededicated herself to live comedy, eventually building to her actually filming and releasing her first hour special, Stage Fright, on Netflix. The special, which also mixes in documentary footage of Jenny with her family, was directed by Gillian Rospierre, Jenny's collaborator on Obvious Child and 2017's Landline. And the goal was not to make something perfect filled with bulletproof material, but to try to actually capture the vulnerability and spontaneity of what Jenny does on stage. All of that is on display in the short section we're about to play, which comes towards the top of the set. If I can say one thing, pay attention to Jenny's energy as the joke progresses. 
So here is Jenny Slade. This is a performance. <laughs> um, but what has happened, unfortunately, is that um, since Y2K, uh, I- I've just been melting. <laughs> I've been melting my brain uh, by pot. I know like a brain is supposed to be like like that, like have like mass and volume. My brain is more like a crepe (laughs) that has been rolled by someone who isn't French and is not committed (laughs) to the cuisine. And then... (laughs) And then inside of the crepe is just one like naked wiggling worm that's like getting really tired. And, like, doesn't know how it ended up there in, like, that bad sleeping bag. And it's just like, oh, mother. (laughs) And then I imagine my brain, like, the bathhouse in Spirited Away. Like, Like it's like a thought comes in or, like, something to discuss. And it's like a token that pops down in front of the worm's face. And the worm's like, modern art? Oh, shit, man. (laughs) And then in life, I'm like... Jackson Pollock put jizz on his paintings. Jackson Pollock starring Ed Harris put jizz on paintings. And then someone's like, get out of the Guggenheim! And I'm like, Guggenheim? I thought this was the aquarium. <laughs> you guys fucked yourself by calling them your museum the Goo Goo Goo. That museum is fun, because you're like, (laughs) I went there one time on drugs. (laughs) And I'm here with the the person behind the joke you just heard, Jenny Slate. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the joke itself, let's talk about weed. Uh, Okay. You you started smoking, (laughs) I believe, senior year of high school. But it was in college, you really took to it. On Seth Meyers, you said it was like finding your soulmate. <laughs> fast, yeah. fast forward, it seemed by at least 2015, you're starting to have less of a positive relationship with it based on certain tweets I was able to find. <laughs> um, one was, uh, doubt I'll follow my own advice when this anxiety dies, but I think it's time for me to stop smoking weed. Jenny, please stop. Please remember this SOS. Uh, and I do, I do believe you quit sometime <laughs> later. So those are just sort of the facts that gives uh, people a sense of the timeline. But sure, in so, those are in the so facts. Much, but in yeah. so much as it was a relationship, can you talk about how it evolved from when you when you started until when you decided to stop? Yeah, sure. Um, I was not in any way really like a partier in high school. I think I was. I didn't really have access to those situations until the mm-hmm. very end, and I also was kind of afraid. Um, and then my senior year of high school, I did smoke weed on the eve of Y2K on that, um, <laughs> on that New Year's Eve. And I remember smoking weed for the first time. And I was like at the top of a hill in New Hampshire. And like when I was done taking my first long hit of a joint, I was somehow at the bottom of the hill surrounded by cows. And I was like, I guess this is what the future is. Like Y2K <laughs> yeah. came in and it's just me and cows. And I'm like into that. Um, and in general, and I just, I really had never felt the sensations before of, of like just 
being super stoned. And um, I really liked it. I liked um, how it made music sound to me and like all of the things that are really cool, I guess, about responsibly using marijuana. Um, and I continued that relationship for, uh, you know, decades. Um, but well, whereas like it was really, really fun in college and getting stoned never had any um, sort of like undertones of paranoia. Mm-hmm. Once I got further into my adulthood and maybe had more to lose or f- learned more about myself um, or just saw the world more clearly, I started to get really paranoid. And then um, and then eventually I really had to stop because I don't know if you if you smoke weed and you don't have to say, um, but like there used to be for like years, like seven years at least, a moment when I would smoke the weed and I would just flip out. I would just completely (laughs) silently flip out and um, my heart would beat so fast and I would be totally enrobed in this just like, oh my God, I cannot believe that you think that what you're doing is good because it's bad. And everybody can see that your personality is bad and your decisions are crazy. And you've Mm -hmm. made so many of them and everyone saw it. (laughs) And uh, yeah, and then I've started to talk about it a little bit on stage. But then I truly took in too much THC one evening and like melted my Mm -hmm. dome for good. And I've never been able to turn back. It's over. When was that? thorough <laughs> melting <laughs> that was in the fall of 2018 mm. and what happened was that I hurt my back and I was just trying to take some CBD gummies and my friend Jane was like oh okay well I have these gummies they they helped me when my stomach hurt and like they'll just help you relax your back so here you go. And there's a there was like a dropper of a THC activator. Mm-hmm. And um, she was like, well, I don't really, you know, smoke a lot of weed. So I just took one dropper. But you probably have like, in, you know, infinite <laughs> tolerance, which is yeah. true. Like I used to smoke weed a lot, like a lot, a lot, a lot. And I just didn't think anything about it. Um, and so she was like, I don't know, you should probably take two or three droppers. So I was like, OK, I ate the gummies. I took three droppers. I ordered Thai food and I was like, well, this will be the best night of my life. (laughs) You know, like I'm just truly about to chill. And then um, the next thing I knew, I was like sitting at my dining room table and oh, and I decided to watch the movie Amelie because I thought Mm -hmm. that would be delightful from what I remembered. And I was like eating the food and all of a sudden I was watching the movie and I was like, what language is this in? Like, what what language is the movie Amelie, what are they speaking in? And, like, when did this movie get so scary? Like, why is it so reminiscent of, like, a Polanski, The Tenant, or Compulsion, or, like, one of those movies where someone just goes crazy alone? Like, what is this? And then I, I was like, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And then I realized my mouth was like stuffed with noodles and I was not even chewing. And I was like, oh my God, it's poison. (laughs) It's poison. Poison. Someone poisoned me. And I I wiped all the food off the table Mm -hmm. and ran up the stairs in my house like a dum-dum in a a horror movie. (laughs) Like going up the stairs. Made it to the top of the stairs, barfed on the floor. 
mm-hmm. and then was like, oh, I guess I got to get into bed, you know, and I like, <laughs> got into my bed with all my clothes on, got into the bed by entering it through the bottom of the bed. Of course. And crawling on my stomach up like under the comforter and then sort of like, like rolling myself over in bed and was like, I need to call for help. I need to call for help. And then I was like, no, 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 it's too late in the evening. Everyone's sleeping. It's like they're slumbering now. You're you're lost. You're done. You're going to die this evening. You're dead. And I looked at my phone and it was 6.45 p.m. And I was just like, I just was pretty sure I was going to die. And um, I was like, I have to pee. How would I ever do that? Like, I, I don't, every time I go to the bathroom, I'm usually in the bathroom and and like my pants are on and how do I get those off? And I couldn't make any connections. And then apparently I sent a lot of texts to different friends about like what's going on in patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And then I left myself a two minute and 26 second long voice memo. And it was like the meanest thing. I listened to it like three weeks later. Cause I was, I was like, Ugh, what's that going to be? And, um, it was like the meanest thing I've ever heard. Like <laughs> it starts oh, wow. with a laugh. That is not my laugh. I mean, it really, really bummed me out. But it, it was like the laugh instead of my normal laugh was like, <laughs> and then I say to myself, why do you have to cut everything with a spiral blade? <laughs> this is total vague abuse. Mm-hmm. Um and then the next day, uh, my friend Jane texted me and was like, hey, got all your texts last night. Um, I feel really bad, but I, I meant to say two drops, not two <laughs> or three droppers. And so I think I took about at least 120 times the dose of THC. Mm-hmm. And, um, and ever since then, I have not been able to smoke weed ever again. And I, I really don't miss it. Um, it really messed messed me up. <laughs> the end. The end. Now to talk about uh, your your stand up in in general. How does your comedy work? Sort of the process of deciding to talk about something on stage and sort of refining how you say it. How has that style evolved? I I, I just ask because like as a person who's been watching you for a while, I just what I know is there's sort of you are freewheeling upstage. I, I remember I had a friend who saw you at, I think, a festival, and you did two headlining sets, and you did completely different hours both times and didn't even realize you did different hours both times. <laughs> so what? how does it happen? You know, how, does, how do these ideas get in your head? How, how much organization is it? How do you sort of, like, become more particular with how, how you put the things you put? Well, I think the first challenge as a comedian is that you do do bits. Um, and there's something about that that can feel really inauthentic. Um, you know, it can feel, it can feel like lying. Um, but that's not how I'm sure a lot of people will put it, but that just has to do with my own organization inside my mind as a person. And I think the way I do it is I like, I know enough to understand what things are entertaining and that and what things are funny. And mm-hmm. that's a, a social skill that I learned as like a, a person who is like doubtful and, um, and like shy, even though it might not, th- it might not seem that way. Underneath everything is a feeling that's like, maybe this just like, like every time I'm about to go anywhere, there's always a moment before I, th- 
before I go in where I just try to go home. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that is in every, it's like the seed of every interaction. So I, what I choose comes from a social feeling of, um, of trying to please people and trying to um, become a part of something. But I just, I think after, I think it happened for me after I left SNL that I really just wanted to be able to ignore um, systems and rules when it came to comedy. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's some stuff you can't ignore. Like you have to, you have to give something that people want to listen to and you can't just like be self-indulgent. But I think it's just a social instinct. Um, And then before I go on set, I make uh, on stage, I make a set that's just bullet points. So it's not, I'm not just like fucking off in in any way. In fact, Um, I find a flow. uh, I put the bullet points down. And if the things are too written, um, I feel embarrassed and I'm bad at saying them. But if I don't exactly have all the transitions written out, but I know my stories just the way that you know yours. And mm-hmm. if you're like, you know, at a dinner party or on a date and some of your best stories come up, that's how it comes up for me. And I do have lines that I repeat for sure. And I do have bits that go together. But um, but there's just a lot of material there. And I guess, I don't know, like I, I've I've heard, I saw on my Twitter feed, I try not to look at that much at like the, you know, replies to me or, or the ats that are from strangers because I think that offers, um, either like poison or treats. There's not like a lot of in between, but someone was like, yeah, I loved her special, super loose, but I still liked it. And I was like, oh, what do you mean super loose? Like, why is that bad? Yeah. You know, like, it's, I'm just a human being on a stage, like doing stand, I mean, doing, doing talking, basically. <laughs> and I think there is always the ability for me to do different hours because I just care about the relationship in the moment and not, not very much about the perfection of the bit. Um, yeah. In so much as like anyone who has stories, the more they tell it, they sort of quote unquote better they get at telling it or the more they understand how people receive it. Do yeah. You f- are, are you paying attention? I guess, I guess the question is like, are you noting what works in a way that, let's say a more rigid comedian who's really trying to pound it out would be like, I'm saying it this way, I'm going to remember it so then I can know if I should change or not. Are, are, do you even try to pay attention to how you say it? Or is it more instinctual of like, you say it one way, and every time you say it, and then over time, just like it, it flows into a sort of the way it becomes. I think it's the second. I think that um, I think that it flows into the way that it becomes. I think that's exactly right. And that if I try to repeat something word for word, I usually take the life out of it. But I do notice things. But mostly, I just it's again, it's like social. It's like I notice when things don't please people. Mm. Um, like I used to do a joke. That was sort of, I would never do it now, but it's, it's just where I was in my mid twenties. Um, that was kind of a, it was like a joke making fun of how I look. Um, mm. maybe I, I, I guess it was about my, my nose maybe. Um, and I just remember being like, people don't like it when I say this. 
They don't want to do this with me. They don't, they don't want to abuse me with myself. This is something, this is something that I do alone and that mm-hmm. actually I shouldn't do on stage and that I should kind of try to not do in general, even like internally. Um, but a lot of times the reason why I do record my sets now is that just like in this conversation, like I, I say the things that I mean, but I don't often remember them. Mm-hmm. And when I decided to just take the step into feeling some sort of legitimacy about my comedy, um, which meant like stop seeing it as just a social thing that you do um, and actually realize that just like all of the people that you're around, you are a professional and you can like, you can take some space with this if you want. You can take some time and you're not going to ruin it if you record your sets. And so I, I did start recording them. And usually like about four hours before a show, um, I'll listen to a set that I remember as like really fun. And mm-hmm. um, and I'll put those bullet points down again. And I probably won't say the thing the exact same way, but I get close. Uh, so with this joke, at what point does it become part of your act and sort of what was the initial spark that you're like you're going to talk about on stage and in, in, in as much as you could sort of remember that this was something that you remember talking about in a public I guess forum you know th- this joke um I really don't remember when I started to do it but I do know that the Guggenheim part of it was said for the first time when I recorded my special so oh wow um, I probably have made fun of the Guggenheim before <laughs> because I'm a shithead. Um, and, you know, but I mean, I I just the dress rehearsal for the special had gone so terribly, was genuinely the worst show of my life. And so um, I just wanted to try to be myself and do some new stuff in the special. And so what was there, though, was like, I was thinking about my brain in terms of like Miyazaki imagery for a while. And I think I had mentioned that on stage a few times, but I really couldn't tell you. It certainly was just, I don't know, like pretty recent, like a couple months maybe. And just a few times. So it's interesting because it's not like you had the beginning part of this joke with the, the worm and the spirit away. And then you had a different example you're just sort of like following this thing and then maybe being in New York, you're like, oh, the Guggenheim. And then that is sort of like typified whatever this mindset is. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if it's that tight. <laughs> like, I wish I could say, yeah, New York. So was it was this even on your outline to do this thing generally about how your brain was melted by weed and then you just sort of followed it along like what yeah but you had no idea how it was going to end you're just going to be like i want to talk about this i have the sort of spirit away imagery somewhere in there and then we'll figure it out yeah like um i mean and there's not even a discussion like that like for me and and gillian robespierre who directed my special you know the I ended up in her movies because she saw me on stage and mm-hmm. she, before I became a professional actress, uh, the first thing I ever like really acted in that someone paid me was like when I made, I think the short film of obvious child, um, or maybe they didn't pay me, but either way, that was like yeah. the first time, you know, so she knows, she knows what I'm like and 
she wanted to record me as I am. I have did used to have this joke that was always often at the start of a set. And it was about how, well, it was kind of a disclaimer. And I, I think I do that because because I do anticipate people being like, this isn't stand up, is it? You know, and like, I really don't like that. And I, I reject that. But I also know that you can't, even before you give somebody something, tell them that they're not going to like it because that's just a bummer. And so it used to be like, I've been smoking weed since Y2K. And the joke used to be about like, do you guys remember Y2K? It was when all the dads freaked out and thought that, you know, the computers were going to make it be zero o'clock outside. Yeah. And um, that used to be a like a pretty formed joke. And it was very formed because it was like a diving board. And then mm-hmm. it would be like, so anyway, I've been smoking weed since Y2K. So what, so I'm melted now and whatever I can possibly muster tonight is like what remains. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're here to see something more than that, I would suggest either closing your eyes or turning around or, and leaving or <laughs> whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of where we were, but the, I think there was a discussion about are people going to know who the guy is in Spirited Away who takes the tokens? And my feeling was kind of like, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like how many times has there been like a sports joke (laughs) that I just like don't know who they're talking about, but I still enjoy it because I like the way the comedian moves and talks like they can they can like that. And also they should discover <laughs> Miyazaki. <laughs> Did you, do you remember if you said the full version of the Y2K joke at, on the night and you ultimately edited it out? Or when you say the joke in the special, you just say Y2K and it gets a laugh, you know, as if you have told the full jo- joke, it's like, oh, they laugh at Y2K. I can just sort of move on. You're like, oh, the audience is telling me they order, already kind of get where I'm coming from. I don't remember. I think there was a reason why I stopped telling that joke. And I, I, I again, I just don't remember. That's but um, because I melted my brain from sure, yeah. but, um But what I do think was that there were there were two jokes that used to be kind of tent poles or like one was a door and one was a pole, let's say. Mm-hmm. So the, the Y2K joke was a, a door or a diving board. It was an entry point. And then in the middle of my set, there used to be a joke about people who say that they're weird and mm. that like people who say that they're weird are not weird. Um, like they, they clearly know that it's become attractive to say that they're weird and their examples of being weird are always like, I'm just like weird. Like I like to eat like breakfast for dinner and like eclectic things. Like none of my pillows on my couch even match each other. It's like interesting. I'm like weird. And that a true weirdo, like goes into Starbucks and asks to see a menu and like, like they, or like a true weirdo is like, you know, the only way I can come is when I look directly at the sun and that's how I doink it or whatever. And you're just like, no, that's not how you come. Or I guess, I mean, you can, but I ended up taking out that joke. Um, or we tried to, I tried to do it and it just was, it was funny on stage and it did, it wasn't funny when we watched it. Like it was like, this is crazy. I, I don't know why. And then, we were also like, well, well, okay, Jenny, but you just you just said that a, a weirdo masturbates like this, but mm. then at the end of your thing, you 
you masturbate by looking at the moon. So like, what's your message? And I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> so we, we took it out. Um, but I think there was, um, I don't think that I started that joke and did not complete it. I think what probably happened was that I was like, I'm bored of this. Yeah. I'm so scared because the, the dress rehearsal is so bad. And I know that boredom is the thing that makes me bad. So I don't, I know this is like my most developed joke in a way, this Y2K dad's thing. Yeah. Um, but I guess I have to like, I have to throw it overboard. You yeah, know? it was almost, it's probably symbolic to yourself to be like, this is the thing that I have most prepared. Yeah. So I'm going to throw it out because that's the thing that's getting in the way for me to do actually what I need to do. Yeah, I mean, and that that's how I remember it. And, and like, there is nothing better to me than a new joke that just sounds so much like how I think and and that people would laugh at that. And I love metaphors. I think they're so funny. And um, I just like love those comparisons. And in the moment, it was just like, you, you know, I haven't worked towards this point in terms of honing my material. I, I've only been crafting a way to communicate with people in this like special way. And I think what was really bumming me out before we were going to film the actual shows was like, I've been doing this thing in good faith for so long. I've been putting myself out there. It's really real. Um, I really, really believe in it. And I'm messing myself up because there's like a dolly cam here, yeah. you know, because I'm because I'm in an outfit that we already picked out or whatever, like these weird things that made me feel a little bit like harnessed and so Gillian did her best to like chill me out and um and I, I do think it worked yeah. in the end I I want to ask you about specific parts of the joke less about you know how you formed it or whatever more just like what you like about it now thinking back on it and, and what does it <laughs> evoke to you so you describe your brain is more like a crepe that has been rolled by someone who isn't french and is not committed to the cuisine <laughs> what do you like about that image it reminds me of how you open your book with your fantasy that someone would see you see past the woman and sense that you're actually a homemade parisian croissant what is it about these sort of french food image that you're like this communicates what i want to do in this moment Wow. Um, I've never made that connection before, but, um, I think, um, you know what I, I think of French food is really fancy and, mm -hmm. um, sort of snooty and like really, really indulgent and buttery. And I, and I really enjoy eating it. I enjoy eating it. Um, but I guess what I like about that joke is just that I don't think it, I just think it's exactly how I think. I, I just don't, I think you could give it to somebody else to say. Um, it's, it's enough there that it's not just all personality, you know, like it's not just all gusto, but um, that I said that in the moment it was not written and that I said to someone committed to the cuisine, the reason why I like it, other than that, I think it's just really funny to word it that way, committed to the cuisine, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, like a person and, and that, you know, that that's true, that a person at like, you know, like Jake's Crapery in the Denver airport is not like I love French cuisine, sure. you know, um, and that there's truth there. But that like, <laughs> why 
I don't know. It's just such a serious way of saying something so <laughs> stupid. And I think that's why I like that whole joke. I am really proud of the way that I observe life. I like how I do it and I like, I like experiencing it. And I also just feel so tender towards the fact that it is so juvenile, mm -hmm. but that it's not lazy. It's like, uh, I'm giving you a full picture, whether or not the picture is of a fart machine. <laughs> you know, that's like, if you don't like that, then I completely understand that. Um, but um, the work is enthusiastic and mm -hmm. it's complete, but it's like the work of someone doing a perfect somersault without pants on. You know, it's exactly. just like stupid. <laughs> um, the next part, you introduce the naked wiggling worm yeah. that's getting really tired and doesn't know how it ended up there in that bad sleeping bag. Can you tell me more about this worm? Like, it felt like, though you only described this this worm's place of existence, that there was a larger picture of what this evokes, this, this worm. I, I don't know what I was about to say, he or she, but in my head, there's a specific worm. Can you tell me more what this worm you thought of? Um, I mean, I guess when I think of a worm, I'm usually thinking of the worm from... Looney Tunes mm -hmm. that like I, I'm pretty sure it wears glasses but you know I like the idea of the psyche being compartmentalized and that like inside each thing is a little sweetheart who is um, trying really hard but failing mm -hmm. and set to a task that they're not like born to do and um, I just love that a worm is so meek and that it has like truly no way of of like reaching out for anything and and it's just like there to <laughs> it's like there to do nothing you know it's just such a bad situation it doesn't have arms or legs and um it's stuck and i i guess i just love it because it's when i think of it i i, I think of it as um both meek and like hyper stressed out hyper stressed yeah. <laughs> um and I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm answering this question right. No, no that's exactly what I imagine. It's, it's yeah. more. If you asked me if I thought you made it up all that night, or if you'd been do doing it for ten years, I wouldn't be able to answer it. But the main thing, especially with with the the imagery, it felt like you you had a very specific image, and you're able to have it be so specific because your picture of it was very full. And though you describe it sort of succinctly, you do have a full picture of it, and. It's the part of the special that feels most like your book, Little Weirds, in mm -hmm. that like that it, it's filled with the sort of the, the book's filled with these sort of small animals and creatures, and they and it's why the Spirited Away bathhouse image makes sense because it's all these sort of like different creatures all working together, and they all have the little sections. Yeah, um, <laughs> and it, so my question was, you know, <laughs> to. For me, it's like when I'm in therapy or whatever, I'm trying to describe a feeling that is sort of out of reach of my own personal vocabulary or experience. My brain finds like a moment in pop culture or scenes or characters or a joke. And, and I sort of use that vocabulary to express something that I might not have before. For you, when you are trying to express these things, do these creatures just appear? You know, like you're just like going down and then like, there is this image. Like, is it a visual thing in that way where you are, it's like you're just like walking down and like, here's the creature and there, it's almost like your brain, it pops into it or is it a little bit more deliberate 
of like, oh, I have this feeling, what represents that? Yeah, it's, it's pretty fluid. It's like the, the image just pops in. And then I think that is paired with preference. Like I was just thinking like, why did I do a worm? You know, um, because I know I just, I just like put that together, um, in that moment. But like, you know, you could say a worm or you could say like a coughing shrimp, you know, that's like getting really dry and actually like is, is like not cold anymore the way that they're supposed to be when you eat them at a party. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. have snap to itself anymore, but, like that to me is too sad. Um, and like a coughing shrimp is a little bit too like dark and a little bit too, um, like evocative of like, I partied too hard or I've been smoking, you know, Mm. I've like been smoking cigarettes on during my shift or something. And it's the worm. I, I do think that, that I, I almost always go towards things that are, are working and either succeeding or failing, but like in, in earnest. And yeah. that, like, I don't often like things that are, um, it's just not what I like, that that things that are, like, rock and roll, <laughs> or, like, that are dark, you know? Like, uh, it's very, very rare that you'll see tougher images like that. Um, even, yeah, or, like, yeah. in the special, there's, like, a joke about a little boy who who is a ghost and um, asks, if the picnic, if he's missed the picnic and that then he throws up. But even then, I just think of him as like a little boy with, you know, dysentery or consumption. Like he's just existing honestly um, as a ghost. So the next part is to speak to sort of your example of how it's someone doing a perfect somersault, but with no pants on. The next <laughs> part, which is the Jackson Pollock part, but it's the fact that he put jizz on his paintings. I guess first question is, do you remember <laughs> learning that fact? And yeah. Being like, this is a fact that's going to stay with me forever? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I learned that. I, is that a fact? I mean, I just know that, like, I remember someone said that and that, like, um, it pairs with, like, feelings that I have about a lot of um, male artists from the mm. <laughs> 20th century that I'm just like, I guess, um, I guess. But, uh, I, uh, yeah, I've had that fact in there forever. I have also never seen the movie Pollock. Um, it is interesting when you, when you put it that way, this joke is like <laughs> sneakily feminist as if it's like, you're telling the Guggenheim, like, this is what you call art. The fact that just because he jizzed <laughs> yeah. on a painting means it's art. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's always that. I mean, it's, and at this point, it's not like not on purpose or on purpose. It's, just something that happened for me that like once I had whatever you want to call it, some sort of awakening to the realities of true patriarchy and what it means to um, have internalized misogyny, which is something that like I and I think everyone deals with, even if externally you're like, I don't like misogyny. There's, you know, we're born into patriarchy and it's it's just in there. Misogyny is in there. And, and so it's like now I'm just always sort of, gesturing at like where I think it is and showing that it's ridiculous or dressing Mm -hmm. it down. And I don't, I think there's also just, it's like why people love dumb and dumber. You know, it it just, it just feels so good to be like, Oh my goodness, you guys are so fucking serious. Aren't you? You're just so serious with your big museum. That's it's a ramp, you know? (laughs) And I like to go there. It's not that I don't like to go there, but I also just, I don't know the 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 snobbery and it's so cool that it's there but it's not untouchable. 
In fact, yeah. like the fact that it's a place where you can't touch anything just makes me want to like touch it with how I talk. Yeah. The, this part has a really impressive stretch where you're essentially doing four different characters and voices at the same time. You're doing the worm, your present date self, <laughs> the self at the Guggenheim who's like stoned and the yeah. Guggenheim security guard. And yeah. it's also the point where it, it, I was watching it to see because it's early on. It's like you seem a little bit more nervous at the beginning. And then by the end of this joke, you like barely can tell the joke. You were laughing so much. <laughs> yeah. Is it a moment where you're like, I think I can do this, where this feels comfortable? This is more of a diving board or a door for yourself than imposed to the audience of like, oh, I, I, this is fun. This is the sort of thing that I wanted to capture. I think it's an unconscious realization that I can do something that I'm, I'm scared to do. And like, it's always funny to me when people are like, Oh, yeah. I mean, I love that at the beginning of your special, you're like, you're, you're nervous. And I'm like, you can see that. I mean, for me, that's just how I start every set, you know, and, and, or, um, I just want that to be without a, a qualification. Like that nervousness is bad. It's that nervousness is not the sign of a professional. Mm -hmm. Um, because it is the sign of my professional process beginning. And if I weren't nervous, that would be bad. Um, I'm not trying to stay nervous. I don't like it, but I, yeah. there's just, this is just what it is. But like, I will say I could feel like, oh my God, you know, this just works. And it just, I think you're seeing somebody who is really starting to experience um, like a infusion of power and pleasure. And the only thing that I'll say is like, I haven't, I don't think in its like finished form that I've watched the special all the way mm -hmm. through because it just makes me feel nervous um, because I'm like, how could I ever do this again? How did I ever do this? But that like, get out of the Guggenheim, that impression yeah. to me feels lazy. Um, oh, interesting. And then it's, it's, it is what it is. It's, it's what I had then, but like. It feels halfway to Adam Sandler. It, I'm like, I, I'm like, this is a little dorky. Not that Adam Sandler is dorky. I'm not trying to like say that, but, um, I don't think that, <laughs> but anyway, um, I'm just like, that's lazy. You know, I, I wish I had picked something else. And I do kind of like how it's just a plain impression yeah. of a security guard because also it's boring. Yeah. Which is right. It yes, you. He was not going to say a funnier thing. Like he wouldn't right. sound like a comedian who has a perfect thing to say. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what voice would be good for that. Um, anyway, but yeah. I like clearly, I'm still not good at my own joke. But um, but the whole point is to get to the other side of the of being expelled. So, so that I can do the thing that I love the most, which is to laugh in the face of the person who tells me what to do yeah. and say, like, you have no fucking idea how much I don't give a shit about this. <laughs> That's what makes me laugh even now in my own kitchen. I'm just like, you legit don't understand, like, how much you fucked yourself. 
the joke that comes after, which I, I I love. I mean, like it's it's one of my favorite moments of the special, which is you you guys fucked yourself by calling your museum the goo 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 goo. Yeah, which is, which is a nice <laughs> moment because it's also like it's being like I'm not crazy or weird about this. I'm rational. The world is weird. It like yeah, it fits into like a what a lot, especially the beginning part of the special, which is like let me explain how my brain works and why it's like not bad. It's like totally normal. Let's like ingratiate. Did it feel that way for you? Or you're like, it, where it's it's empowering in a way to be like, I'm right, world. That's yeah. a dumb name for a museum. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is exactly how it feels. It just feels like, well, you know, if you wanted people to come here and know what the museum is, you should have made it look like a like something else and called it a name that's easy. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> it's obviously also um, a useless and immature retort to someone who can make me leave a museum. Sure. But um, yeah, it just it just really does shine a light on on the silliness of how it's a bit snooty. Mm-hmm. And again, like, you know, the 80s, like movies in the 80s are so into making fun of people who are snooty. Um, you know, just like the whole Abe Froman Sausage King moment in Ferris yeah. Bueller, where it's just like, we don't show the the like super white affluent in that same way anymore. Like mm-hmm. I, that just like stuck up, you know, in Mystic Pizza, it's kind of the same thing where Julia Roberts' boyfriend goes to the country club and... um I just grew up, uh, yeah, thinking that that snootiness was really funny. And by the time you grow up, especially if it's like, you're like me, you lived in Brooklyn, you're a comedian, you you do think art is cool or whatever, um, you forget that um, actually the funniest thing is to be like Tom Hanks and big at a party and eat a, eat a, eat a, one of those like tiny little corns, like it's corn on the cob, like that. To me, that kind of innocence and petulance and powerlessness is so funny and yeah. and worth a disruption. Yeah. So, you know, I've been watching you perform stand-up for years, like 13 years. But I, I don't know where I first heard this, but I just sort of knew you didn't want to film your stand-up. I, I, I knew people had offered, but you just sort of didn't want to do it. Uh, so much so in the in the summer of 2016, I even had a coworker ask you about it in an interview, and the and you really had so many reasons why. Um, it's a really good answer, so I will I will read your answer. Oh, good, said, no, yeah, <laughs> no do. way you remember. If you remember, that'd be wild. Uh, you said in the interview that appeared on Vulture, maybe I only want to live in the moment. I want to be able to create it again and again using the same stories, but tailoring them specifically to the people who are there and what the vibe in the room is. It feels like asking why did or why did or didn't you record your birth or your wedding. Even though in my case, there are other people there, I feel like my stand-up is personal experience. I want to be like a wild animal that runs through your backyard free, a flash of movement, something other. I like the flaws. I like the oddness. I don't want to say this is what I am and what I did. I just want to keep getting up there no matter how hard it is and say I'm here in the way, in this off, in, in this way, in this outfit, in this mood, only now. You know, besides, as you said, Netflix let you completely do the special on your terms yeah you know what inspired you what happened in the sort of three or so years after that quote and then how did you how did you believe you can achieve the same thing you talked about in that quote but in a film special um 
I think that what first happened for me was that I started to spend a lot more time alone. Mm-hmm. For like the first time in my adulthood, I was not in a an intense, serious relationship. And um, I always felt like my best stuff kind of goes to my partner. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, my, and then I'm on stage and that's great, but there's no reason to like work extra hard to make my stage thing more. And then once I started spending time alone and, and starting to write, I was like, I, I just started to see, and it's going to be hard for me to connect the dots and, and be articulate about it, I think, but that I had put a lot of my energy into my partnerships and I just didn't want to take the extra time to put it into my work. I wanted mm-hmm. my greatest work to be my romantic relationships. And I saw those failing over and over again um, because of limits in myself that I, I don't think I could get past or choices that I were making that really didn't make sense for who I was. And when I was alone, I was just like, oh, I want to, I want to get into my work. You know, I'm realizing I'm not taking it to the end. I'm, I'm doing the equivalent of partying, you know, like even though I'm not, I'm not drunk on stage for the most part. Um, I, like there have been times when I legitimately have like pulled a cigarette out of my hair and started smoking it and been like, who did this? But, um, but that's not where I was at. And, uh, what changed was that I just experienced a moment where I was like, wow, I really like writing. And I want to write a book. And I actually have been through a really formative personal experience in like my mid thirties. And I want to write about it. Um, and I, I just want more. I just wanted more. Um, and mm-hmm. I didn't want to give my energy to, to someone else anymore because I realized, I realized something in me was really dying. And, um, I had been on the verge of, of like kind of tapering off of stand up and doing more films. And, um, and then I guess around the time that like, I guess in, in the fall of, uh, 2018, I want to say, um, and I had like a couple, I had a movie come out that summer and like a, like kind of a large movie come out that fall, the movie Venom. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just felt really lost. I, I yeah. really did not understand the the decisions I was making in my career. And I looked back at some of my old notebooks, like from my days in Brooklyn. And I was like, these jokes, they're not jokes. They're, you know, they're bullet points. But I was like, what is this lobster tank? Like, what does that mean? What was I doing? And I just thought I've been working at something for so long. And I'm acting like it's not legitimate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just have to step up. And so I, I wanted to do that. And, and that to me felt like a personally feminist move in that I was like, I have been giving my power away, um, for the sake of like harmony in, in a home that I have continued to lose. Mm-hmm. And I have harmony in my own home when I'm here by myself. Let me get real about what I want. I want this. And I don't want anyone to fuck with me while I'm doing it. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. want it to change. And so I asked Gillian Robespierre and Elizabeth Holm, who I worked with on Obvious Child and Landline, like, will you do this with me? 
will you protect me on it? And I asked my agent if she would ask if I could do a Netflix special. And I was like, I don't want to have to write a statement to anyone. <laughs> like, I've been doing this for long enough that either they'll let me or they won't. Um, but I can't tell them what it's like going to be about really. <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> but if they would like, but I wrote a letter that was kind of like, I, I want to be able to explain myself on stage. And mm. I think of it as sort of a feminist symphony, um, rather than a battle cry because mm. I've fought my own personal battles and now I'm like, I'm just ready to use those sounds and celebrate. I'm, I'm, I'm here and, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure my life will tank again, but like <laughs> I, you know, I'm here and the way that I did it so that it was not disturbed is that like, I just used the people who knew me the most and, um, I, yeah, we had an all-female crew also, which was a really great vibe. Um, and I just kept myself really protected yeah. rather than being like, what star move can I do or something? <laughs> like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even know what that would be, but there was never anyone in my mind to do it except for Gil. We'll be right back with more Jenny Slate. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. back with Jenny Slate. So in the, in the intro of Little Weirds, you describe what it's like for you to perform. And I just love it. Um, I was hoping you would read that section for me. Yes. Okay. When I am on stage, it is mostly my party. But I am hoping to throw it for us to honor our having the faith to come together and feel something bubbly and balmy as a collective. I am throwing the party for the sake of itself, for yourself, and for myself. On the stage, I am thrilled and moved, 
But before being seen by you, I have been terrified, often ill-tempered. I have most likely ruined an entire day by fretting about this evening. Just before I open my mouth on the stage, with bright faith in everything, me, you, that the building won't fall down, that I will catch on to the thing that helps me zoom, that a man won't come in and shoot me, etc. I have most likely used my same mouth and voice to tell everyone backstage, I know I say this every time, but I feel really off today. I can tell that it's going to be bad. Once I'm up there, so many feelings happen at once. The lights are shining right into my face, so I can't really see you. I imagine you as one complex but benevolent identity. I am nervous, but also excited for you to see my onstage outfit chosen just for you and the people. It took many tries to choose this one outfit. I was trying to figure out what I want to be wearing when we all fall in love. On stage and everywhere else, I know that there is so much you could do to me. My vulnerability is natural and permissible and beautiful to me. And it should remind you of your responsibility to behave like a friend to me and the world. When I read that part in particular the first time, you know, I, I loved it. And, but all I can think about is how different it is from how many stand-ups usually talk about their relationship to audiences. Um, historically, but even fairly recently, which can be so antagonistic. Like, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to kill <laughs> You know, how, how do you feel about that? How, how did you feel having, you know, you came, you came up around people that probably talk that way. And, you know, what does it mean to, to, to sort of so, I guess, brazen, I don't know if it's brazen or right, just to so run counter to the, the, the culture in which stand-up has sort of defined what should be exchanged? Um, you know, I, yeah, I know that language, and I, I'm sure I've said to friends, oh, my God, you killed it. Um, but I say, I guess I said you killed it. I'm never like, yes, yeah. you knocked him dead, <laughs> yeah. whatever. Um, but I think, I think what I've been lucky to hold on to, and I, I really can't say why, except for that, um, you know, in a world that way overuses the word authentic, and it's, and it's actually just become kind of disgusting, um, I think... I think that there is something in me that just does not want to be other and doesn't mm -hmm. want to lie. And that, so as I've started to have a career and, and, you know, when I, when I started on SNL, that's also when I got a, like a Twitter account and stuff and, and started to also put my personality out there. What I did just, I think out of instinct was to be the same person everywhere. You know, everybody can, everybody's affected by culture. Um, but there is a choice to make if you focus on how you specifically speak about who and what you're interacting with. And I think those choices are incredibly important. I think they're really, really important to me. Talking about stand-up the same way I talk about romantic love makes sense to me because those are two giant loves and I'm the same person. Mm -hmm. in either situation, yeah. you know? And so, I don't know, it's not that hard. It's just, it's just who I am. And, um, and also it's what I want. Like, I want love from stand-up. I love stand-up, but I also um, want when I get off stage to feel that the people felt loved and that um, 
I was loved by them. And that sometimes can be really gross to admit. Like, I want love. Because mm-hmm. sometimes it sort of smacks of some sort of internal injury. But also, everybody has an internal injury. And it's not bad. And um, I, I just... I just want to be able to speak about things differently, which is also why I decided to write my book. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also why I can, I get up on stage and instead of being like, what's the metaphor for when your brain's ruined by drugs? I don't know, like Swiss cheese or something. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a way to say the same thing to people and, and they might just laugh if you say, I I did too much weed and now I can't remember stuff. Like people will just laugh at that. Like you don't have to do so much, you know, but this is what I have to do and I just have to do it. It it reminds me of, you know, after the, the news of Louis C.K., all that stuff came out, I, I wrote a piece about how he, along with other sort of comedians, represented this idea of honesty Mm-hmm. in a way that made them feel better, in a way that's like confession, which is like, I'm going to tell you everything about it, and then you're going to say I'm not bad anymore. But sort right. of like leaving the audience with nothing. And um, really, and in, it reminds me a little bit also, you talked about how sort of stand-up has misogynist rhythms, um, how there is a belief that you should do it one one way. Mm-hmm. And all of this sort of lines up where it feels like you are pushing back at the basic idea of like there's whatever the one way is which has been defined by these certain men this entire time just by being like i'm just not going to do that way i'm going to do it myself is i mean it becomes radical because it's been so hard to sort of break that Mm. yeah i mean and i think i remember reading that and i i remember thinking oh my god you know the most dangerous thing about what Woody Allen or um, Louis C.K. are doing is that they're bringing this thing out into the light and acting like since they've mentioned it, of course it won't really occur that they're mm-hmm. going to cross these lines. You know, it's it's like it, they, it's 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 such a um, a sickening maneuver, and um, and I and I feel that way about it completely. I just think I think it's. Um, <laughs> I I just think it it's wow it blows me away it blows me away and in a way um wow it must really suck to have to do that um and that sounds condescending but I I mean it from a place of like I have not been able to function with the level of rage I feel sometimes uh about the like me too situation in general and and many other situations but that yeah. um there's a way to also be like, I am so glad that I have figured out how to masturbate at home. You know, like it's not that hard. I, and I haven't talked about it in stand-up because I did see a couple of other women talk about it. And I was like, I, I don't think I have anything better to say than that. But like where my rage kind of comes from is just seeing a system exposed mm-hmm. and then weirdly clutching to my own sexuality and being like, Hi, do you think I'm not the horniest fucking person that ever lived? You don't think I've been like rubbing my body against stuff since the second I found out that I had a body? Like I've figured it out. I have Mm. figured it out. So have a lot of people. And it just feels, it just feels bad. Um, It just feels really bad. So there has to be a way to be like, whew, thank God I didn't do that. Uh, Thank God I didn't do that. 
Um, but yeah. anyway, I got off topic. Um, sure. <laughs> as it, as it can be, but honesty, you know, I can be, I was just talking to Max Silvestri, who I know you've had on your mm-hmm. show. Um, and we were talking about a character that we're creating and, uh, that, that I will hopefully play. And what her deal is, is that she traffics in intimacy. And that's the, that's the phrase that we were using. Um, and there's a way to, to traffic in intimacy and honesty. And, um, it's something that I have kept my eye on because it's not that I don't have things I don't want to talk about. I, I do. I have things I don't want to talk about. And, but there are some things that are in the zone of, I could be ashamed of this. I could hide it. Like my new standup that I'm thinking of now, mm-hmm. which is a good example I think of this, is that what I really don't like about myself, one thing is that um, I can be really um, like threatened and jealous by my partner's former um, partners. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just don't like that about myself. I'm embarrassed of it. But when I start to talk about it out loud... Um, I noticed that it's starting to make me laugh really hard. Um, I was telling my friend the other day that like, yes, it's normal to run into exes. Like my partner's totally cool when we run into people I've been with. But like every time we see someone that he has been with, I feel like the second that person looks at them, that the second that person looks at my partner, that they're just saying with their eyes, remember when I came? That like that's how hard it is for me is that I'm like I'm pretty sure that this woman is like remember when we were like at that place and I like came you know it's just like it's torture it's I hate it I don't like it about myself um I do think I do the right things at this point in my life to not try to like ruin you know like it does just ruin my partner's day with it but but anyway um there are things to share and work through but like to use honesty in a manipulative way is a, that's a, that's a dark choice. That's a dark choice. Mm -hmm. You you know, you talk about in stage fright and in the special that, you know, before you go on stage, you know, you're funny, but you're just sort of afraid they won't like you. What has it meant to have this special come out and have it sort of be firm proof that people like you as a standup that you could point to and be like, well, there is film proof that you sort of can't deny that there is people that respond to it. You know, what has the response done as you sort of like think about yourself as a comedian or an artist moving forward? I don't know. You know, it's hard. It's like I when when we finished the special, um, I think we all felt like this is what we wanted it to be. <laughs> like, thank mm-hmm. goodness. Just like, thank goodness it did happen. Um, and I was really pleased, really warmed up and like, um, relieved, I guess, by the fact that it was like critically well received. Mm -hmm. And also like sort of, I was saying this to my friend the other day, like when things occur in nature and you know, they occur, but they're always like, Oh my God, I can't believe it happened. Like just when you put a plant somewhere and it does move, it's, its whole plant body to be near the light and its whole body represents that, um, that inclination, you know, it just like is off on some weird direction. You're like, yeah, everybody says that plants need light and they find it. But like when you see a plant do it, 
it just can almost make you cry. And that's kind of how I felt about the special coming out was that I was like, I was exactly my organic self, including yeah. a massive failure in the the dress rehearsal, which like, I know I keep mentioning it, but I, I do think about it a lot that it was incredibly scary and bad. And I was really embarrassed. And um, I remember that two women who were in my high school class who I don't like know very well, but wanted to reconnect with, they were nice enough to come. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like, wow, way to double up on that nightmare. Like you just yeah. ate it and you ate it in front of them now. Like, uh-huh. um, but yeah, <laughs> um, but so that was really nice. But then it just kind of, I don't know, you can't hold on to that. Yeah. Like what's my new, what's not like what's next. In fact, I, I've only just done a tiny little part in a movie since then. Um, I've, just kind of been, I went on tour for my book and I don't know, it, I just kind of let it, let it bloom and fade because mm. you really, after a while, like you hold the thing in your arms, but it, then it, it does become lifeless, like that praise. Um, so I, that's how it feels. And then there's, there, I don't know what it is about me, but there's, there's always a part of me that's like, yeah, it was good. Like that was legit good. That was that was legitimately good material and I liked how I did it. But yeah. do, does it get the same attention that like these other um comedians who are women are getting? Um I don't know. Like I kind of always feel a bit niche even though I don't really think that I am. I really yeah. don't think I'm niche. Like I think I'm I think I'm as like edible as, you know, buffalo chicken tenders. Like I think I'm really serving that, but um maybe I'm not. Maybe I don't. Maybe I maybe I don't get it. Considering it's a time where essentially no one has been able to perform comedy in front of a live audience because mm-hmm. of the pandemic, has has that made you has that have you had time to reflect upon your relationship to your stand up or stand up in general? Yeah, it it kind of feels like when someone dies and you're like, oh my gosh, if they were here, all I would do is just listen to their stories that I've heard a million times and like, or just tell them how much I love them, you know, and and not let a moment pass where my eye isn't just trained on them. And and that's how I feel about stand-up, that I'm like, wow, I've been really, I've acted like this was a given um, and that maybe I'll, one day I, I will be inappropriate for the art form. Um, you know, like maybe I, I'll just become like just kind of corny and it uh, it won't be good anymore. Um, that That's a possibility. But it's made me just be like, wow, I can't wait until, you know, in L.A., the place where I perform is, uh, most often is Largo, that theater Largo at the mm-hmm. Coronet. And that's where my family is and um, my comedy family. And I just want to get back there. And I also haven't changed at all in that I'm like, what if I don't have anything to say? You know, like there's all this time has passed. What if I don't have anything? But um, I do, even if I get up there and I'm like, well, I've been sitting in silence for, you know, a year and a half. So it's nice to hear the sound of my own voice, JK. I constantly talk to myself or anyone who will listen. I've been, I've been actually spending the last year and a half listening to my voice, you know, like whatever. That's an example. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, it, something will come, but yeah, I really miss it. And I'm also, 
scared of it in the way that it's, you know, when they say it's just like riding a bike. Yeah. Like there's also that part where you're like, yeah, but I don't, I don't, but I don't remember how to ride the bike. That's what I'm saying. I remember what it's like to get skinned knees. That's what I remember. Like the only thing I have right now are my legs and I can see how they might be ripped open. I mean, I will say as a person who's been following your career, who, who is, has been a, a big fan of you for a really long time, that is the most, like, you've sounded like I'm a stand-up comedian and I can't, like, I can't wait to do the thing that I do. I feel like <laughs> there were times where you're like, oh, I do stand-up, but I'm trying to be an actress. And that is, the stand-up facilitates and it's like a way to hang out with my friends. But this is, like, I feel like the listeners don't know that that does feel like a radical departure, maybe a bit of being like, oh, I can't wait to, when I think of what my normal life is and what I am, it is doing stand-up. Yeah. I mean, there's, I love making movies and I hope that people will still let me be in their movies when people make movies again. But um, the power that I felt when I made my special and the realness, the the self-actualization that I felt um, was really important to me. And, you know, I, as I grow older in, I grow more into my adulthood, I'm 89. I, tur- I yeah, just turned yeah. 89 and um, my legs fell off and so did my head, but, um, I'm still here. Um, but as I, as I get more into it, it's like, I just see how my own ego works mm-hmm. and how I can become, I could just get so trounced by my own, my own ego and, and, um, I think stand-up has just become more more and more dear to me. And it's it's also really local. It's like, I don't really like the idea right now of having to leave my partner and be on a movie set without him. Um, but I love the idea of going to Largo where Max Silvestri is and Gabe Liebman and my best friends and that, you know, um, Ben, my fiance, is like watching from the side of the stage. While I say like how my jealousy issue is insane, um, (laughs) (laughs) or whatever. Um, and I mean, and still when I say that out loud, I'm like, I should not have mentioned that, but, um, but it's, it's not like, (laughs) it's not like, like there's harmony in my life, but you know, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but sometimes you arrive at a truly like bountiful, beautiful, serene time in your life and you still find yourself being scared of stuff that you realize doesn't doesn't apply anymore it Mm -hmm. just doesn't apply like it doesn't there is nothing that my partner does to make me feel scared of his um connection to me and so now I'm like oh this thing's so weird it's like I have a weird spike coming out of the front of my head and I just I'm like gonna I'm just going to talk and talk until it falls off. I do feel like that is partly the sort of like Jewish experience, the sort of like the our generation of like there's the children of the children of Holocaust survivors of like mm-hmm. nothing can be fully good. So don't allow, like it's just sort of not allowed. It doesn't compute. I think sort of our brains are like, well, there has to be something wrong. I will create it if I sort of have to. Yeah, I mean, I I do think there's a bit of that. I do tend to think of myself as a, I've described it as like being a relentless optimist, but um, I think that what I have been profoundly affected by is the the ways that straight white men have been able to live and have sex Mm -hmm. uh, in patriarchy 
and the way that um, everyone else has had a different experience. And of course, th- those experiences really range. Um, and that entire thing also is connected to like racism, you know, like yeah. it's a whole it's a whole fucking mess. But um, I think for me, what affects me the most is not a general I mean, I am a very Jewy person, but like mm-hmm. not a general feeling of like the other shoes get a drop. I might as well throw it on the floor or whatever. Yeah. But that it's like, man, you know, I know guys get really offended by this, but um, there's just been a lot of disgusting stuff forever. And most of the parents have not told their um or at least, you know, like I'm speaking about like white males, like like yeah. most of them have not been cautioned uh, to, you know, watch how much they eat <laughs> out <Yeah>. there. <laughs> and um, and it's it's just scary. It's like I do think there's a joke in my in my um, special about it. That's like, do you get it? Do you get it? You know, or, or do you not? Yeah. And um yeah, a lot of people find that offensive and scary and like it's an overgeneralization. I'm lucky that I have a partner who doesn't feel that way. Um, mm-hmm. But there's nothing scarier than a male partner <laughs> when you're like, uh, you need to look at like a lot of stuff. And and yeah. even if you say it nicer than that, you know, um, I don't think anybody loves that that way of being addressed, <laughs> including me. Uh, I don't, I would not want to be addressed that way. But if, you know, you try tenderly to reveal some of the way the operations are going down and if a partner's like, no, that doesn't exist and you're like a crazy radical bitch, mm-hmm. <laughs> then it can make you lose faith. And I think I'm arriving at a point in my life where I'm like, oh, okay, I have like a truly dreamy, feminist partner and like I know how I want to do my work and I'm starting to realize more and more how I just want to be in this world and um and I'm so scared Mm -hmm. a lot because I don't see many examples of functionality but I also only wished or dreamed that I could be how I am and I have become that um, without much resistance from myself. Mm-hmm. So maybe the best things can happen. You know, talking about this as sort of a time of reflecting, you know, recently you announced on Instagram that you're no longer going to voice the biracial character of Missy on Big Mouth. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about how you came to the decision? And was there something in particular that opened your thinking? And, and, and how does it sort of fit into sort of where you, you're at? Well, everything's connected. And and I will say, like, um, I am definitely down to talk about that. But what I don't want is to be, like, overly congratulated. (laughs) You know, like, I just, um, I don't deserve, like, I just, it's okay to talk about it because I think it's um, a good example. I, I think of somebody being like, oh, shit, I really messed up. And I, and I, I've learned how I've messed up and I've only really recently understood those specifics and it's going to take forever to, um, like divest myself of the racism that has been allowed into me because I am a white person, uh, born into a culture of white supremacy. But, um, you know, I, I think that when the news 
went from coronavirus to George Floyd's murder and a very real and um, persistent, necessary discussion of now you can't use the word like persistent without just like mm. invoking whoever told, you know, yeah. what, <laughs> you know what oh, I mean? I yeah. She persisted yes, or yes, yes, whatever yes, yes, yes. total shitbag said that. Um, but um, <laughs> thank God I can't even remember the name. Like, let's not. But first I was like, okay, well, what, what am I supposed to do? Because if I, if, if, Everybody, this like the 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 week after George Floyd was murdered, um, there are all these people uh, who have a lot of followers on Instagram, like let's say like people working in Hollywood or or in the media or whatever, and posting um, pictures of George Floyd or um, that or Black Lives Matter. And I was like, I'm not sure what to do because I don't want to just be um, doing something for the ornament of it or for mm -hmm. the look of it. And I don't want to just be like, yep, I'm a good white person. I posted on my thingy. So you can't say I'm bad. But then I also thought, well, I can't not say anything. Um, and I thought, what is that about silence? What is that about a silence that I, that I almost did just because I had decided, well, I don't want to be, I don't want to just be somebody who's like, doing a shallow thing. And so I spent that week like getting in touch with a, a person that I know who took a course on white supremacy and asking for their course packet and like buying myself some texts to read that I was like, someone told me to read this two years ago and I should have read it and I'm going to read this and um, setting up monthly donations to different organizations to help the black community. But I still was like, I don't get it. <laughs> I'm not, I'm just, I'm just missing something. And for a while I had thought, I don't think I should play Missy, but the reasoning that seemed okay to me at the time, which I now realize was not, um, was that I, well, I'm one half of the character, Yeah. you know, which is basically the same thing as like being quote unquote colorblind. Yeah. And, um, I, I understood that as, as, as racist reasoning. And, um, of course, like a white person, you know, that thinks of themselves as progressive is going to be totally nauseated by the fact that they might've done something racist, but, yeah. but we white people do do racist things, um, directly, uh, even though they might've been like unconscious or not on purpose, um, as Robin D'Angelo says, there's a difference between, you know, what you intended and what your impact was. Mm -hmm. And I think the final straw for me was that I saw um, a video on um, uh, one of the writers on Big Mouth. Uh, he had posted a video about like how to be a an effective activist versus just like a good uh, an effective ally versus a good ally mm -hmm. and um, asked um, that people make a list of what three things they could do. And, um, you know, I just was like, this is really clear. I'm just, I'm just, you know, we're acting like a biracial actress doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I don't, I don't know who will take that part, but like she does exist and she'll be wonderful. And like, it's just not my part. It's not my thing to take. And, um, I understand if people don't, <laughs> It's funny that like you can clearly see that some people don't understand, but um, it doesn't matter to me. 
um, there was the full support of everyone I work with. And, um, it, it's, it's hard obviously to see that you've missed a lot and to see that you're part of a problem. And I am, um, and I still am, but, uh, to, what was important to me was to try to word my statement in a way that was clear and not focusing on myself and uh, focusing on the issue. And that was unemotional um, and not asking for anything except for um, just to be able to take a moment of accountability. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and then I, and then, you know, the rest is, how people feel about it um, is, is again, like that's part of the, the cultural dialogue, but um, I think it's, it's a, the time is really now to um, get clear on beliefs. So mm-hmm. that's that, but, it, but it, but it, yeah, it's really, it's, it's so weird because I, I obviously just did talk about it for quite a while, but um, yeah, it's like you don't want to make it about anything but the just what needs to happen. Like it's I forget uh, what the what the analogy is, but um, or I think it's in the book White Fragility um, that. It's like when there's an accident, you don't like go to the person that drove the car and hit the person and comfort them because they got in an accident. You go to the person that got hit by the car and you help them. And I I think that's like, that's the deal. (laughs) So that sound means it's time for our final segment, which is the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a a laughing. Okay. (laughs) Makes sense? Yeah. Do you have a favorite joke joke, street joke, dad joke? Um, my favorite joke to do, I guess, is like kind of a prank. And it's, it's like when you drive by a stranger and you roll down your window and you're like, hi, Linda. And then the person just looks and they don't know what happened. Um, is that a joke? That counts. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, also, I love um, pantsing. Pantsing. It, only in the house. Only in the oh, okay. house. Yeah, I wouldn't like do that in the world, obviously. Um, is there a joke from another comedian that you wish you could have that like, you wish you could steal it. You wish the, there's another dimension where everything was the same, but you had this joke or at least a part of this joke or something that you got to say, or just a joke that you wish, Oh, I thought of that. Um, no, but, but in general, I just like always wish I could be like Max Silvestri. (laughs) I think he's the best comedian out there. I think he's the best. I think there isn't anybody like him at all. He's like a total bolt of lightning and he's completely unique. Yeah. And every time I hear him talk on stage, I'm like, what? (laughs) I am in deep admiration of what he does. You have a new movie coming out that's set in Norway. What's a fun fact about Norway? Oh, um, I like how they say, thank you. It's nice. That's a nice way to, that, that in Norway, um, when you say thank you, you say talk. That's a nice fact, right? Yeah. Yeah, it counts. It's nice. <laughs> talk. Um, in interviews, when people ask you about SNL, they want to talk about 
just the time you curse and you've talked about it nine million times and I don't really care, but do you have yeah. any other nice memories you'd like to share? Cause I feel like you don't get to talk about any other thing about that time. Oh yeah. I have lots of nice memories. Um, uh, the main one that sticks out right now is that JLo was incredibly nice to me. And, um, at the end of, of like a week together, um, she told me that I was made for this. And I remember just being like, well, now I just can end my life. <laughs> I love JLo, have loved her for so long. Let's end with this. Can you, I guess, say, goodbye as Marcel. I want to hear Marcel's voice. I feel like I haven't heard in a while. And can you just say goodbye? Uh, okay. Like, I guess what I'll just say is that, uh, I want to say goodbye, but it's only so long. Not, not goodbye. Like, so long. I'll see you again. That's a song I know. But goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. Thank you. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch Stage Fright on Netflix. You can buy Little Weirds wherever books are sold. You can watch Jenny's new film, The Sunlit Night, on video on demand starting July 17th. Follow Jenny on social media, at Jenny Slate. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Art Chung, and Camila Salazar. Gotcham Shrikashin did our theme song. Write our review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, five stars. Please, email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture in the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with the best specials of the year so far. Have a good one. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Why do you run? Why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.